Good morning and Merry Christmas. The scripture reading this morning is John 3:16. After the conclusion of the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and I invite you to respond, thanks be to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning, and Merry Christmas again. It's good to be with you all this morning, and I would argue that I get to open the greatest gift possible for you this morning, Uh, John 3.16. On the eyelids of every football player, or the cheeks of every football player, uh, made notorious by Tim Tebow, go Gators, I'll leave that alone, uh, it's a Christmas truce, we'll call it. Uh, But this morning, I want us to think about this. I've entitled the sermon, The Greatest Gift. And, uh, but before we jump in, I want us to think back. What is the greatest gift that you have ever received? What is the greatest gift that you personally have ever received? Um, I know for me, it was middle school. I remember it really, really, really well, vividly. Um, We had made our way through unwrapping all of the presents, and my parents did this trick. Maybe some of you uh, parents have done this as well. All the presents are done, and then they say, huh, I think that there's one other gift that we neglected to put under the tree. And uh, they brought it out, and we saw the size, the shape, the structure of the gift, and my brother and I, it was addressed to both of us, went over, and we tore just enough to reveal the Nintendo 64 logo, at which time we began to run around the house, as you must do when you see the Nintendo 64. You run around the house in laps, made our way through the kitchen, through the halls. Uh, We thought about going outside, but that was too far away from the gift, so we made our way back to the Nintendo 64, only to discover we didn't actually have a TV that could operate the Nintendo 64. (laughs) So we were out of luck. But all gifts that we've ever received like this all have one thing in common. It's actually a few things. Number one, they normalize. They become normal to us. Number two, they break. They break. And number three, they expire. You know, no matter matter what the gift, they all are privy to this type of thing because as great as the N64 was, it paled in comparison to the soon-to-come Xbox. And then the Nintendo 64 found its way to the closet, and then it was sold for parts to buy an iPhone. It's in with the new, it's out with the old, out goes the warm, and in comes the cold. It's the most predictable story told, in with the young, out with the old. And this morning, I want us to take a few minutes to briefly consider the greatest gift ever given. The greatest gift because it meets both our greatest need and our greatest wants. Because the greatest gift ever given, friends, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So here's my hope for this morning. For those of you who have received this gift, I read this week that the greatest danger at this time of year is not consumerism or materialism, but that we've grown bored with the gospel. So this morning, I would invite you to once again crack open the paper 
and run around the living room with the hope of salvation that you have. And for those of you who have maybe not received the gift of Jesus, I pray that today you would be thrilled by this gospel, by this good news that there is a Savior, and that you would join us in running around the living room together. So here's our main idea, and it's not so much a main idea as the verse. (laughs) If you don't have it memorized, Lord willing, by the end of our time together, you will. Let's read it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what love you've bestowed on us that you would give us your only son, that by believing in him, we would be saved, that we would not perish, but we would have eternal life. Father, I pray now that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us. For your glory and our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started. We're going to ask four questions. I'm going to fly through this because I've been told to be brief. Why does God give? What does God give? How do we receive God's gift? And what are the results of God's gift? First, why does God give? The beginning of the text. For God so loved the world. Love is the great motivating factor of our God. But love has been so tarnished and kind of dragged through the mud in our world, hasn't it? We're trying to define love by simply saying love is love, which makes no sense. Love cannot be defined apart from God. Because the scriptures tell us that God is love. So no definition of love is complete until it traces back up the source to its origin. God himself. God loves from his nature. For all eternity, God has been loving. Father, Son, and Spirit have been dancing in this perfectly measured movement of love. Love is not sentimentality. Love is not feeling. But love has edges. Indeed, love has a face. Paul puts some flesh on it for us when he says love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, it's not boastful, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. There's more that we could say about love, but I want you to know this morning that God is all of these things to an infinite degree, to an infinite degree degree. And God did not kind of love you or sort of love you. The text says God so loved you. These two little letters John is trying to tell us of the magnitude of God's love for us. God so loved. The hymn says the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. Because it can be easy for us to think of God's love as like a slightly better version of ours. Like we're pretty good at loving, right? And his is just a little bit better. He's a touch more loving than us. But friends, the love of God is different in quality and different in quantity than our love. And God has set his love on a peculiar object. 
a real peculiar object. And even the angels themselves are perplexed by how God loves and what God loves. In Psalm 8, the psalmist says, When I observe the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? Or a son of man that you look after him? We see the object of God's love in the text. For God so loved the world. This word for world here is cosmos. John, the author of the Gospel of John, has used this word over hundreds of times in his Gospels and his epistles, and he uses it to refer to fallen, cursed, sinful state of man apart from God. So let's replace some words here. For God so loves a fallen, cursed, sinful man. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners. While we were still sinners, God shows his love. And he is not indifferent. He's not aloof and far off and uninterested in us. His love is not waiting on us to get our act together. Because Lord knows he'd be waiting for a long time. How do we know love? How does he show love? It says in the text, for God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave. Has anyone ever told you that they loved you? And then their actions showed you something completely different. Their actions said, I'd do anything that you'd want me to do, but I can't go for that. No, no, no. No can do. Or, I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. Or maybe a little bit more uncomfortably for us this morning, have you ever told someone you love them and your actions told a different story? See, we measure love by what love gives. Men who love much give much. Let me say it a different way. You can measure love by how much a person is willing to sacrifice to serve you. Jesus says it this way, it's more blessed to give than to receive. And in another place, he says, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Which brings us to our second point, what does God give? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His only son. His only begotten Son, His beloved Son in whom He was well pleased. The gift of God is this. God Himself. God Himself. Who can even measure that love? Who can measure it? Let me make it plain. God so loved us that He seemed to love us better than His own Son. And did not spare him that he might spare us. He permitted his son to perish so that we might not perish. Romans 5 also says that a man might actually maybe sort of kind of do this for someone he likes. That's not what the text says. Notice the tense of the love of God. If you miss this, you miss the good news for you. It says this in the text, for God so loved. Past tense. He so loved the world that he gave his only son. But how far back does this love go? Peter helps us. In 1 Peter 1, he says, For you know that you, 
were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed to you in these last times. Jesus Christ has always been the gift of God. The promise of Jesus was made in the Garden of Eden, the moment Adam fell. On the spot where our ruin was accomplished, a deliverer was promised. One who would break the serpent's head under his foot and be bruised in the process. And from that moment forward, all of history is in the shadow of the cross. Waiting for it, yearning for it, longing for it to come. And all the Old Testament tells this story. Abraham and his son walking up the mountain, father-son camping trip. With a twist, I'm going to have to sacrifice my son at the top of this hill. They get to the top of the hill, and what happens? God says, no, 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 not your son, but mine. He says, on this mountain, I will provide. And on that same mountain range, hundreds of years later, God would give his one and only son in our place. Jesus has always been the gift of God to us. He would be born of a woman to bear the sins of his people and to die the death on their behalf. Romans 5.8 says it this way again, but God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not Christmas unless you quote a long Spurgeon quote. So here we go. Think about this. He did not give his son as you might do to some profession and the pursuit of which you might still enjoy their company. He gave his son to exile among men. The Lord sent the heir of all things to toil in a carpenter shop, to drive a nail and push the plane and use the saw. He sent him down among scribes and Pharisees whose cunning eyes watched him, whose cruel tongues scourged him with base slanders. He sent him down to hunger and thirst amid poverty so dire that he had nowhere to lay his head. He sent him down to the scourging and the crowning with thorns, to the giving of his back to the smiters and his cheek to those who would pluck the hair. At length, he gave him up to death, a felon's death, a death of the crucified. Behold that cross and see the anguish of him that dies upon it and mark how the Father has so given him that he hides his face from him and seems he would not own him. Lama Savachanai tells us how fully God gave his son to ransom the souls of the sinful. He gave him to be made a curse for us, gave him that he might die the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The father gave the son. And now, right now, God gives the son away still. But how do we receive this gift? Point three. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, faith, however small, saves the soul. And we need a little bit of help here, because when I say believe, some of you immediately think Santa Claus and Polar Express. You think of blind faith, not a rational faith, but that's not what the Christian faith is. 
We are believing people. You are placing your faith in things all the time. Things, people, ideas. You do this constantly because you were made to believe in something. The question is not if you are believing, but what or who you are believing in. So we'll look at three little movements here, okay? Of faith, of belief. Number one is assent. There are truths that you must believe are true. Historical facts, theological truths. Such as, Jesus actually existed. Any historian worth their salt will tell you Jesus Christ existed in real space and real time. Number two, Jesus made some claims that he was the son of God. That he was the son of God. Which C.S. Lewis says that you either have to do something about that. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the Lord of all. This is a historical fact, something he said. Number three, there is an empty tomb outside the city of Jerusalem. There's an empty tomb. You've got to do something with that. I would ask you this morning to assent to that truth. But it's not enough that you simply assent to those truths. Facts about God. And I fear that we are so rational in our thinking that we think, oh, I believe that vaguely out there as a true thing, and we think that's enough. No, no, no. You are a sinner in need of a Savior. Unless you acknowledge that you need a Savior, those facts are so far outside of you, it might as well be Abraham Lincoln. I believe, I've read him in the book, I've seen the beard, I've seen the hat. I know facts about him, but there is nothing about him that reorients my world. Jesus is Lord, and that reorients everything. He's my Savior and my Lord, which leads us to the third movement. I assent to truths. I accept them personally, and then I trust myself completely with Jesus Christ. Ray Ortland says it this way, when we start to trust him, Jesus, more than we trust ourselves, we're beginning to understand what it means to trust him at all. We place our trust Daily in the Lord Jesus. More than a summer camp experience decades ago where we raised a hand, closed an eye, shed a tear. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus constantly, over and over and over. Cling to Christ. But it says that this belief, uh, that anyone who believes, who can do this? The text says Whoever. Whoever. It does not say in the text, whoever gets their act together. It does not say, whoever keeps the law. Because we can never do that. Therefore, the gift would be for none of us. But it says, whoever. As long as it's still called today, and you have air in your lungs, don't let Christmas pass you by without opening the gift of Christ for yourself. There is a Savior here for you right now. So men, women, children, believe. Whoever, whoever, believe in him. And the fourth question, what are the results of God's gift? I love it. I love this tiny little, there's so much in here, but I gotta be brief. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. 
me say it as plain as I can. If you believe in Jesus, you have right now eternal life. If you do not believe in Jesus, you will perish. You will perish. Believe in Jesus and be saved. There is no third option. There is no third option. But in these two items, we see the splendor of the gifts. For it simultaneously meets our greatest need and our deepest want. Let's look at the first, the things you need. It says you should not perish. You have ever only known perishable realities. If you leave the food out overnight on the dining room table, it's going to disintegrate. And Twinkies have a shelf life. It's long, but it's there. You have only ever known perishable reality. You have only ever known a fallen and death-stained world. And your greatest need is to do something about death here. But this text says you should not perish. Let me illustrate this a little bit more graphically for you. When you believe in Christ, in Jesus Christ, the scriptures say you become a member of Christ's body. But we know that death could not hold our Savior Jesus Christ down. I've been told, I haven't experienced this personally, but in order to drown someone, you have to hold the head underwater. For us in Christ, ain't nobody going to hold the head underwater because the head is enthroned on high. Our arms experientially are flailing like this, like we are underwater doing a limbo. The head is secure above water. Brothers and sisters, you will not perish. Death is dead dealt with and there ain't no grave going to hold my body down because of the finished work of Christ. There's no greater gift than that, but that's not enough because Jesus doesn't just meet our greatest need. He meets our greatest want because he promises to deeply satisfy us with everlasting life. Now, when you hear the words eternal life or everlasting life, if your mind immediately goes to babies and togas, Flying around from cloud to cloud? If that's your idea of everlasting life, maybe that's why you don't daily long for it. Long for it. Jesus helps us. He defines eternal life in very simple terms that we can understand. In John 17, in his high priestly prayer, this is what Jesus says of eternal life. He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Listen to this. And this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they may know you. That is eternal life. Eternal life is nothing more and nothing less than knowledge of the one true God. This is personal knowledge of the everlasting one. And this is more, again, than rational assent. This is more than that type of knowing. The word here is gnosko. And this word carries with it the idea of familiarity acquired through shared experiences over a period of time. This is the type of knowing we're talking about. Eternal life is an intimate relationship of knowing and being known. 1 Corinthians says this of eternal life. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. 
Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We were made for relationship, friends. And the satisfaction of all of our longings is met in Christ. In knowing Him, being known by Him, being loved by Him. Our greatest need and our greatest want. We'll conclude like this. What is the greatest gift you've ever received? Remember, all these gifts are great. They rust and they crack. They expire and break. Everything you give and are given has an expiration date. And that Nintendo 64, I don't even know where it is now. It's probably, yeah, in a junkyard. But I can tell you where my Savior and King is. God so loves us that he gives us something that we want, need, wear, and read. And in the scriptures, we read of God's great love for us. He is anything but indifferent. And he proves his love in this way that while we were still sinners, he sent his son, his only son, to die for you and for me. The kids love it. They're already responding. And I pray that you would do the same. Think of it in one last way. I think of this in terms of marriage. I think about this. I fail at this all the time. But when, when my wife and I exchange vows, the vows were, my, I'm giving you my life. I'll get you a glass of water when you're tired. I've given you my life. I will wash the car. I've given you my life, I'll take out the trash. Romans 8 summarizes the same reality of the Father in us. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, his life. How will he not also with him give us all things? We need to let that, brothers and sisters, sink into our souls deeply. He has given us all things. God has already paid our debt, and with Jesus Christ, is giving us all things. So I ask you again to consider this. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Pray with me. Father, I pray that even now you would soften our hearts, thrill us, again with this good news. Thrill us, Father. May we be anything but bored or indifferent to the great love of which you've shown us in giving your Son for us. And Father, would this news transform us from glory to glory. Father, for those who are, are wrestling with these truths, even right now, Father, I pray that Christmas would be the day that we remember that Christ has come and is coming, and that we would, we would remember that Jesus proves God is anything but indifferent, that he loves us. Father, would you stir up in us repentance and faith this morning? I pray in your son's beautiful name, amen.